I was going to play. I had a great joke to play on you, but um, I'm not man enough to do it. I was going to get up here and say, oh, my word, I'm so nervous. I can't do it. I just can't do it. And then have my dad come up and then say, April Fool's. But I didn't want you to have that feeling in your stomach even for like a minute. You know when somebody's up here and they're so nervous and you're like, oh, my word. It stinks to be him. <laughs> Um, I'm sure most of you know my dad, and my sister is here to listen. And um, do, I don't know if you all know my fiancé or the girl I'm going to marry. Fiancé sounds so French. I like just... <laughs> girl I'm going to marry. I'm Marta Brown, and she's sitting right here in the, one of the front rows, because she's heard this sermon a couple times, so she's going to teleprompt me if I forget any of my points. Before we start, I'd like to just have a word of prayer because I know I need it I always need the Lord's help whenever I speak or whenever I do anything I guess no I know okay dear Heavenly Father I just thank you so much um, that you've given us your scriptures I thank you so much that you revealed yourself to us and them and Lord I just pray that this time this morning would be a time where you are glorified and honored where your name is lifted up and exalted and as a result of looking at your word Lord that we would be a people that are more zealous to serve you, a people that are more zealous to seek your face, a people that are more zealous to know you, Lord. Lord, please forgive us for all our sin. Help us to love you more. In your name, amen. One of my favorite stories in all the Gospels is the story of um, Mary and Martha, found in Luke 10. I think it really illustrates well why I wanted to preach what I wanted to preach to you today. It's a familiar story. Um, Jesus was traveling about, and he was going all around. And uh, Martha invites Jesus to come to Martha invites Jesus to come to her house. And so, when Jesus, I mean, it's the Son of God coming to your house. Martha gets all excited, and so she starts doing lots of activities and lots doing lots of things. She has to go to the kitchen, kind of like a mom. I know that's, or kind of like anybody, I guess, going to the kitchen, doing all kinds of stuff, washing the dishes, you know, making the food. All the while, Mary is in the living room, and she's just sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's just listening to Jesus, and she's just seeking Jesus' face because she wants to know Jesus better. And of course, like most of us, if our sister or brother was doing the was um, lazing around and we were doing all the work, she, Martha got a little upset. So she comes into Jesus, and she almost it's almost like she rebukes Jesus. She says, Jesus, what in the world? Yeah, not quite like this paraphrase. Jesus, what in the world? My sister, she's not doing anything, and I'm doing everything. Can't you rebuke her? Can't you tell her to come in and help me? And I love Jesus' response to Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and you're bothered about so many things, but really only one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen the good part. And really, I think um, Jesus was just telling Martha, he's saying, Martha, you get so busy with so many activities, you get busy doing so many things. You're busy with serving, serving, serving. And you've missed what is most important. You're so occupied with activity that you've neglected the most important thing in the Christian life. And that's knowing Jesus Christ, seeking God's face. And I think that really speaks to us as college students or just as Christians. It's so easy to get so busy, so busy doing activity, activity, Christian thing, Christian ministry. And I know it happens to me a lot. It feels like all the time you're going, you're going to this, you're doing this, you're doing this. You're doing the what of the Christian life, but you're forgetting the who. And um, I really, it's my prayer that this morning would be a time of worship for, 
for you and for me as we look at God's word, that we, we would take some time to reflect and meditate on God for who he is, that we, remember, that we would remember that he is the source of our strength. He is the Christian's hope. When we get so busy with activity and with doing things all the time and we miss the who, really it's devastating to our spiritual life. We lose zeal. We lose, um, we're missing out on the greatest strength. The Christian's greatest strength is their God. So what I wanted to do today was take a look at a, a little chapter in Psalms, Psalms 97. Um, the Psalms are, are one of my favorite books in all the Bible because it's, I feel like when I come to the Psalms, it's almost like I'm walking into an art gallery. And the psalmists are these great artists. And the Psalms are their masterpieces. And their subject is the glory of God. So I wanted to take some time today to look at Psalm 97. And this is quickly becoming one of my favorite Psalms because it reminds us of some things that it's easy to forget in the Christian life. It reminds us of the majesty and the glory of the God whom we serve. It reminds us of his greatness. It reminds us that he is our king. And man, that's so easy to neglect in the day and age in which we live particularly. We live in a day and age and in a church where we talk a lot about the fact that God is personal. We talk a lot about the fact that God is love and that God is mercy and those are good things. But sometimes it's easy for us to forget and to neglect the fact that God is different than us. God is greater than us. God is holier than us. I love J.I. Packer's quote. He says, Today, vast stress is laid on the fact that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is, of the, is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. Our personal life is a finite thing, limited in every direction, space, time, and in power. But God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in his hands. We never have him in ours. Like us, he is personal. Unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people, and on his gentleness, his tenderness, and his yearning compassion for the good of his people, the Bible never lets us lose sight of God's majesty and unlimited dominion over all his creatures. And that's what this psalm shouts out at us. It shouts out at us the majesty of God. The whole theme of the Psalm 97 is found in its very first verse, where the psalmist says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. The psalmist is saying, God is king. Let everyone everywhere be happy. And then in the rest of the psalm, verses 2 to 12, he goes on to explain to us why it's such a good thing that God is king, by showing us the character of God. And then in the last two, three verses, verses 10 to 12, he explains to us how we as God's citizens should conduct our lives. So there's three simple points I want to look at today. First of all, the psalmist's claim about God. Second of all, the king's character. And third of all, the citizen's conduct. Three simple points. The psalmist's claim about God, the king's character, and the citizen's conduct. So first of all, let's take a look at the psalmist's claim, and that's found in the first verse. Here in the first verse, the psalmist is making a claim upon which the whole of the psalm rests. He's fact, in fact, he's making a claim upon which all of our Christianity rests. He's making a claim which many non-Christians would vehemently deny. And he's making a claim upon which many Christians are ashamed of. Charles Spurgeon says, 
that, oh, well, before we get to that, let's look at the psalmist's claim. He says, the Lord reigns. When I first studied this psalm, I got to admit, that didn't jump out at me. I, got, I went on to the rest of the psalm. That, that little phrase, that th- little three-word phrase, didn't strike me as very important. The Lord reigns, sure, that's a good thing. But over the past month, as I've been thinking about this psalm, that phrase keeps hitting me back, hitting me in, right in the chest, like that. Because it's, it's so vital to our Christian lives. The psalmist is telling us that there is a sovereign monarch that rules this world. He is telling us that someone does sit upon the throne room of the universe, that there is an ultimate authority, and that sovereign, that ultimate authority, is the Almighty God. Now, this truth that the Lord reigns, it means several important things, important for us as Christians to remember. First of all, it means that God is the ultimate authority. He is the final authority. No one can tell God what to do, but he can tell anyone what to do, even in an earthly kingdom. When uh, maybe back in the Middle Ages a little more, the citizens didn't have the right to go to the king and say, King, I, I think this is a law that you should make. And then the king didn't have to obey the citizens. No, this king could tell the citizens. He had the right to tell the citizens what they must do. And they, they had no, they could not argue with him. And it's the same way with our God. He has the right to establish laws and standards that we must obey. And this is a truth that is, is contested in our world all the time. I bet you if you, ask, if you went down to Sunset Boulevard or, or wherever and you asked 10 people, you know, how do you know what is true? How do you decide what is right in your life? I bet you 8 out of 10 people or maybe all 10 would say, I decide what's right for me, you know? I have the right to make my own choices. And in effect, in effect, what they're saying when they say that is, I am the king of my own universe. I can make the laws for my own life. And the Bible and the psalmist in this psalm reminds us, no, the Lord reigns. He rules. He sets the standards. He establishes the laws. The second thing that this reminds us is that God does what he wants to do. The Bible proclaims that all the Lord pleases he does in Psalm 135.6. Isaiah 46.10b says it like this, I will accomplish all my pleasure. Everything that God wants to do, he will do. What he wants, what he desires to accomplish, he will accomplish. It's like it says in Psalms 103.19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. What the Lord desires to do, he will do. He says, I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. His plans and purposes will be accomplished. He never says, oops. Our God, the God we serve, the sovereign king of this universe, has never done anything and has never made a mistake. He rules over nature. He rules over us. He rules over the things that happen in our lives. Piper, I love how John Piper says it. He says that God has no deficiencies in himself to make him dependent. And he is sovereign in that he can act on his delights without being stopped by powers outside of himself. We must, it's important to remember this as we go through our day. Nothing happens to us that is outside the sovereign rule of God. What he wants will happen. He is over all the other royal authorities that might seem to challenge his power and his freedom to act as he pleases. God cannot be kept back from doing what he delights to do. And he cannot be forced to do anything that he does not delight in. 
Our God does what he wants to do. And the other thing that this little phrase at least reminds me of, the Lord reigns. It reminds me that there is no standard or authority over God. There is no one, and this kind of just goes right along with the first one. There is no one, no thing that can overthrow the power of our God. He is the ruler. He reigns in the throne room of the universe. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The freedom of God consists in the fact that no cause other than himself produces his acts and no external obstacle impedes them. That his goodness is the root from which they all grow and his omnipotence the air in which they flower. Our God reigns today. He is in the control room of the universe. He is the only ultimate cause. All the sins of man and works of Satan ultimately have to enhance the glory and kingdom of our Savior. This is true of our world today in wars, in famines, in earthquakes, or the evil that apparently has the ascendancy. So as we look at this psalm, the psalmist's claim is that the Lord reigns, the Lord rules. And then he goes on to say in the first verse, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad. What the psalmist is saying is that the fact that the Lord reigns, that should make everyone everywhere extremely happy. That little word for islands and earth in the Hebrew just means the idea is everywhere to the farthest ends of the earth. So the psalmist is saying the fact that God is king, this should make people to the farthest end of the earth incredibly happy. But if you stop and think about it for a minute and you, and you look at our world today, it's easy to become discouraged. It's true that God, it's true, if it's true that God is king, then why are there so many wars and famines? Why is there so much pain? And sometimes it's, if you're not careful, it's easy to question, why is it such a good thing that God is king? Why is it such a happy thing that God rules over this universe? If we look at the universe, universe, the world today that we live in, why is it such a great thing that God is king? Well, the psalmist goes on to tell us in verses 2 through 12 that it's the king's character that gives us cause for rejoicing. And that's our second point. And that's where I want to spend most of our time today because that's where the psalmist spends most of his time. He takes us, the psalmist takes us to the very throne room of God. And I love this next, uh, next portion where he shows us the king's character. Because it's almost like the psalmist went up to the throne room and he had a Polaroid um, camera and he's just taking snapshots. And he's taking pictures. And he comes back to you and he says, look at this picture. This is why you should be happy that God is king. Look at this picture. This is why you should be happy that God is king. Look at this picture. This is why you should be happy that God is king. And underneath this big point, the king's character, the psalmist gives us six pictures. Six pictures of the throne room of God and six corresponding principles. The first picture that he gives us is in the second verse where he says, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the character of God, probably the first thing that I I think of isn't clouds and thick darkness. In fact, I don't think that's ever something that's come to my mind when I think about God. Clouds of the darkness. So it's kind of hard to understand at first what the psalmist is trying to say. But in order to understand it, we need to take a look back into Old Testament history. Because it's like if I said to you guys July 4th, everybody here would know what July 4th is, right? I mean, it's a little phrase, two words that carry a big impact on us. But 2,000 years from now, somebody says to someone, July 4th. I mean, that that doesn't have the same kind of impact. They'll have to look back into American history to understand what we're trying to say. Well, in the same way, we need to take a look back at, um, take a look back into Old Testament history. And I'm missing one one page of my notes, so 
That's okay. We need to take a look back into Old Testament history to understand what the psalmist is trying to say when clouds of thick darkness surround him. And the first place that we can look is in... Um, it's kind of funny that I don't have this exact verse on me, but that's okay. We can look back in First Chronicles. I can't even tell you the, I can't tell you the exact verse because I didn't memorize it. But in First Chronicles, the psalm, uh, not the psalmist, the king uh, Solomon is at the temple, and they they just have established the temple, and the Solomon and the priests they're praising God for establishing the temple, and um, then there's a little verse that says, "Then a cloud came." came in, a cloud came into the temple, the priests weren't able to, to minister anymore because the glory of God had filled the place. And the idea is that where the cloud came, the glory of God was. It's also found in, in, in Exodus chapter 19. Well, well, we'll just skip it, but believe me, the idea is where the cloud was, the glory of God was. The clouds were symbols. They were, A.W. Pink says, I can remember this phrase. I can't remember the verses, but I can remember a quote. A.W. Pink says that clouds were all inspiring attendants, that the glory of the God had filled the place. See, the idea is, when the clouds came, the people knew the glory of God was there. But the question is, why in the world, why, why a cloud? Why did God need clouds of thick darkness to come? Well, the answer is found in Exodus 19, and I do remember this. Exodus 19 Verse um, 16 it says, So it came about on the third day that there was thunder, lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And then in verse 21, the Lord spoke to Moses. He says, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. The idea is, if people came through the cloud to see God, if they broke through the clouds of thick darkness to see God, God's glory would consume them. Because God is so much different than them. It reminds you of the story of Moses in Exodus 33, where Moses comes to God and he says, God, I just want to see your face. Just show me your face. And God says to Moses, man, Moses, no man can see my face and live. If you saw my face, you'd be consumed. So the truth that the scripture teaches us is that God is a God that is full of glory. That we are not like him. That if we, you and me, apart from Christ, if we came to see the pres- if we could see God's face, he's so different than us that his glory would consume us. Kind of like coming to the sun, you know, except times a million. Our God, his very nature is so unlike ours that if we saw him face to face, his glory would consume us. Well, the second picture, <laughs> go on to that one, because I have the notes for that one. The second picture is that of a righteous foundation. He says, Righteous and, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Here it's like the psalmist is taking us up to the throne room of God, and he's looking at the basis for all that God does. He's looking at the fa- very foundation of why God does what he does. And the psalmist says, the very foundation for all of God's actions are his righteousness and his justice. In a home, in, in your house, if there's a foundation, if you took that foundation away, what would happen? The house would crumble. In the same way the psalmist is telling us that if you took away God's righteousness, if you took away God's justice, there, it wouldn't be God anymore. It would no longer be God. The reason for this is because God does not simply do what is right. God, Our God is what is right. His righteousness and his justice are the very foundation of his throne. God cannot act in a way that is not right. All of God's actions are just. As it says in Hosea 
The ways of the Lord are right. And there's just two simple principles for us to remember. This means the fact that God always does what is right. The fact that the righteousness and justice of God are the foundation of his throne. This means that in every situation of our lives, in the daily activity of our lives, everything that God does is right. We never have a reason to question the justice of God. And that's a phrase, that's a little statement that we shouldn't let fly by us without at least struggling with it. Every single thing that happens to you that God has done is right and just. I'm reminded of the story of Job, who was so confused by all the awful things that was coming into his life that he started to question the righteousness and justice of God. And he said to God, Lord, God, if I could, I could judge you, and I could say, you're not treating me fairly. And God comes to Job in Job 38 to 40, and he says, Job, you don't even have a clue. I made this earth. I always do what is right. We can be encouraged because no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens in this world, we can run to the righteousness and justice of God. If we're struggling with pain and, and hard circumstances in our life, and if we're starting to wonder, man, how can God be part of this? We can run back to this verse. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. He's never done anything that's not right because if he did something that wasn't right, he wouldn't be God anymore. It wouldn't be God. Our God can't do anything that's not right. And the second thing that this little phrase reminds us is that God cannot overlook sin. For him to overlook and not judge sin would be for him to be less than God because righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The third picture that the psalmist gives us is that of a raging fire. He says, he says, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries roundabout. Now there's two pictures that come to my mind when I think of fire. I think of one, I think of a nice little campfire, something that you're like in the woods and you're warming your hands by. And the other thing that I think of is a raging forest fire, something that consumes everything in its path. And that's what the psalmist is speaking, picturing God as here. He's picturing God as a raging, blazing, consuming fire. Not a safe thing. The psalmist here is reminding us that God will pour out his wrath upon those who oppose him. It's another picture from Old Testament history. In Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu, um, they're making sacrifices. And they make the wrong kind of sacrifices on the unlawful sacrifices. And the Bible says, fire came from heaven. Can you imagine that if the next time you sin, just fire, just consume these two guys. And then in Numbers, the same thing happens again, but with 250 people. They, made the wrong, they were doing the wrong kind of sacrifices. God, fire comes from heaven and consumes him, consumes them. The Bible promises that God, those who do wicked, God will punish. God will absolutely consume the wicked. He hates sin. His wrath is an awe-inspiring thing. It's not just like a spank. It's a consuming fire. And it follows right on the foundation of the fact that he always does what is right and just. And I've got to admit, there are times when God's wrath, that's probably the... It's probably the um, doctrine about God or the attribute of God that I've struggled with the most. Because it just doesn't quite seem fair to my natural mind that a nice little old lady that you know, you know, she's going to be consumed. She's not just going to be like, don't do that again. She's going to be consumed by the wrath of God. And the reason why it bothers us so much, the reason why it bothers me so much, is because I don't understand the nature, the very nature of God. I'm too human. My thoughts of God are too human. God's nature is so unlike us. He's so absolutely pure. He's so absolutely glorious that any spot of sin, 
his anger burns against. There are some who think, and I think even times as Christians we can think this, that the wrath of God is never going to come. Is sin ever going to be punished? Is our sin ever going to be punished? Well, this verse is a promise to us. That the, this verse is a promise to us that the fire of God will come and he will burn up his adversaries. Isaiah 13.9 says it like this. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate the sinners from it. The fire of God will consume his enemies. And this is a promise to the non-Christians and to the Christians. This is the promise to those who think they can live in sin, break God's law, and get away with it. The Bible tells us the fire of God is coming and it's going to consume his adversaries. Jonathan Edwards has an incredible um, quote about this. He says, The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more. They rise higher and higher. Till an outlet is given, and the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgments against your evil work has not been executed hitherto, up to now, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, increasing, and you are treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. And the fiery floods of, fear, of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon the non-Christian with omnipotent power. And that's not something we should talk about without at least tears in our hearts and, and sadness and compassion, you know, all about us. The wrath of God is coming. And if that's not something that motivates us to tell our friends about Christ, what will? If we believe the promise of God, that his fire is going to burn up those who are living their lives in wickedness. If we believe that that punishment is going to be a mighty, almighty, powerful punishment. And yet we still are afraid to tell our friends about the Lord Jesus Christ. About the hope, the salvation they can have from this punishment about how they can be righteous in God's sight and no longer have to face the wrath of God. What kind of hearts do we have? You know, I'm speaking to myself mostly. So selfish that we are people who know the love of God in such a great way. People who don't need to face the wrath of God because of the righteousness of Christ. People who have been shown the glories and wonders of Jesus Christ's love. People who have had God die on the cross for them. And yet not willing to tell, so slow to tell people about Jesus Christ. Well, um, I think it's the fourth picture the psalmist gives us. This is just a running through the character of God. It's almost like a, it's a quick glimpse, not a uh, theological treatise or anything. The fourth picture is that of a trembling earth, and I love this one. He says, his lightnings lit up the world. It's found in verse 4. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people have seen his glory. God is the sovereign ruler of the earth and of the angels. We're not serving a God who loves righteousness but can't do anything about it. We're not serving a God who just says, Man, I wish this world can be right, but I don't have the power to do the right thing. We're serving a God who, when the earth sees him, the earth trembles. We're serving a God who can, as Max Lucado puts it, we're serving a God who can... Crush a mountain with his right hand, all the while measuring the width of a butterfly's wing with his left. 
We're serving a God who has all the power in the universe. Think about this earth that we live on. Sometimes, I know for me, it's just like, man, it's big. When I was in Africa this summer, we were at the Rift Valley, and we were overlooking um, a rift. I don't know, a Rift Valley, I don't know what it was. It's kind of like a canyon or something, and, but it's huge, it's like gigantic. And so I was just sitting there thinking, my goodness, I am so picking small. And I'm sure most of you have had that, that feeling, man, I'm just nothing. Or even when you look around the world and you see all the people, it's like, I'm just one little guy that <laughs> lives in Southern California. But our God, he holds this earth, this world, in the palm of his hand. During the earthquake in 1990-something, we were... <laughs> I just remember thinking, it was like, you're shaking, the world's shaking. And you just, it was like, I thought about it. God is like, it's just like God sticks his finger down on the map. He's like, chee, chee, chee. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> he's so big, he's so huge, he holds this world in his hand. It is God's lightnings that light up the sky. It is he who causes the earth to shake. It's he who encloses the sea. It's he who commands the morning. It's he who sends the snow and the hail. It's he who directs the wind. It's he who sends the rain. It's he who sends the lightnings. It's he who feeds the animals. It's him who sets the time for the mountain goats to give birth. That's from Job 38. I didn't just make that one up. The mountain goats. (laughs) Right there. (laughs) The earth and all the things in it are subject to God. I think this is such an encouragement to the believer. It should give us great courage and strength. We serve a God who holds this earth in the palm of his hand. We serve a God who can cause the earth to shake. This is your God. This is my God. We serve a God that is stronger than anything. Paulus mountains, they melt like wax. No matter where the Christian is, he is in the majority. John Knox. Or as a guy named Vance Habner put it, when a man makes an alliance with the Almighty, giants look like grasshoppers. There is power in God, John Calvin said, to lay prostrate the whole world and to tread it under his feet whenever it may please him. Okay, we're booking. The last picture is that of a shame. Oh, no, not the last one, but we'll go quick. Is that of ashamed idol worshipers. It says in verse 7, Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves in idols. Worship him, all you gods. God is going to shame and confound those who worship any god but him. And I just can see it at the throne room, at the judgment. All these people that have been worshiping wood, all these people that have been worshiping money, they stand before this mighty, awesome God that we've just talked about. They stand before this God upon whom no man can look. They stand before this God who can shake the earth. They stand before this God who righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine that what in the world was I doing going for green stuff? This is the almighty God of the universe that I could have been serving. The deep sense of shame. God is going to shame them. There's a day coming when their errors will be exposed and they will stand judged. The principle for us here is clear. It's important to remember in a world that says you can worship whoever you please. In a world that says all ways are right. God stands against that and says, I alone am to be worshipped. We, too, must not give in into the compromise. I know sometimes I'm, I'm slow to witness sometimes because I'm like, I don't want to bother them, you know. They're nice people. Well, the truth is, if they're worshiping anything but God, there's a day coming when they're going to be shamed. Don't let the world fool us. We must not let the world fool us that I always are right. No, there's only one way right, and there's a day coming when God is going to shame those who worship anyone but him. The last picture is that in, um, is in verses 10 to 12. 
He says, 10b, he says, God preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. And the picture here is that of a farmer and a preserver. And I just love this picture. The first one is that of a preserver. God protects the upright. And I'm reminded of the story of Elisha in 2 Kings 6.17. And Elisha is, um, he just, he's been doing some stuff that made the king of Aram really mad at him. So the king of Aram's like, man, let's take our whole army. We're just going to go and we're going to destroy Elisha. We're going to wipe him out. So the king of Aram comes and surrounds Elisha's little house with his, with his whole army. And Elisha looks out and he's just, he's not scared. But his servant's like, oh my goodness, what in the world? We're going to die. And Elisha says, Elisha says to him, don't worry. I can just imagine. And Elisha also says to him, there's more of us, there's more of us than there is of them. Can you imagine the, uh, the servant's reaction? Hello, there's a whole army. There's just two of us, Elisha. How can we fight against them? And then Elisha prays that God would open up his servant's eyes. And and the servant looks out and he sees all these chariots, all these chariots of angels. And the chariots of angels come and consume Elisha's enemies. But it's just a reminder that there's more than meets the eye in this world. There's more than meets the eye. And we need to remember that God promises that he's going to preserve the righteous. We don't need to fear. God will take care of us. The almighty, awesome God of this universe promises, he promises to take care of you and me. He promises to keep us in his hand. We're just like a little piece of dust in there, but he promises to take care of that. The next picture is that of a farmer. And he says, light is sown like seed for the righteous. And the idea there is just that light just means joy, like eternal blessedness. So it's like a picture of God as his farmers, just spreading out joy, sowing joy for his people. And as we go along our life's way, God promises that there's going to be joy. He's going to provide joy for us. And even neater reminder of this is that there's a day coming in eternity when we're going to be with God, and that's going to be joy forever. God promises that he has sown seed, sown joy for the righteous. And God's, when he farms, he never loses anything. I guess earthly farmers, they can throw out lots of seed, and not all of it's going to raise up. But when God throws out the seeds of joy for his people, it's all going to come up. Isn't that, I think that's just awesome. You know what? have got about two minutes for the citizen's conduct. And there's two simple responses that we find to these great truths, and that's in verses 10 and 12. The first one is, hate evil, you who love the Lord. The psalmist just looks at his people and he says, hate evil, you who love the Lord. You who say that you're on the side that you believe in and that you love the God of all righteousness, the God whose anger burns against sin, the God whose very nature is the opposite of sin. If you claim to love the Lord, if you claim to be one of his, how can you love evil? You've got to hate it. Your very nature has to go has to be so despise it and for me that just hits hits home because it's easy to compromise with sin it's easy just to play with it but if we say that we love the lord if we know the lord if we believe that god is a god of righteousness and yet there's sin that we play with like little toys in our lives aren't we are we fooling ourselves aren't we liars if we compromise with sin and say that we love the god who hates righteousness we say we love the god who's going to pour out his wrath upon the wicked and yet we play with the sin in our lives. It doesn't make any sense. That's, that's the book of 1 John that says, God is light, in him there's no darkness. And if you claim to walk in the light, and yet you, if you claim to know him, and yet you walk in darkness, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Can't get any more clearer than that. If you claim to know the God who's light, if we claim to know the God who hates evil, and yet our lives are marked by a pattern of wickedness, we're lying. We're fooling ourselves. And the second picture, the second, not picture, the second command that he gives us underneath... The citizen's conduct is in verse 12. Rejoice and give thanks. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. 
Do we ever have a reason to complain? Do we ever have a reason to be discontent? Because when we are be complaining and when we are being discontent, are we not saying, God, you're not doing what's right? God, awesome, almighty God of the universe, who controls all the events of the universe, who promises to take care of me, this little situation in my life, I, I don't think you're doing what's right. I think I know what's better. It's foolishness. We should be so happy and so rejoicing. Christians should be the people full of the most joy because whenever anything happens to us, we know the God behind it. We know the person who's in control of the circumstance. And we know his character and his nature, and we know that we can trust him. Well, our God is king, and we must find our strength in him. And I guess I could go on and on, but I just, it's just my prayer that, um, that we as a college and we as Christians would spend our life seeking after the face of God, that we would let nothing distract us from this one pursuit. I must, we must know God. We must become people who understand our God. Don't let the activities, don't let things get at you from what's really important. So um, let's pray to close off. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are our master and our king. And Lord, I just for ask for forgiveness that too often I think thoughts that are way too low of you. And Lord, I don't understand how great you are. And Lord, I just pray, I just pray for your help, that you would make us a people who love you and who know you. Lord, and that that knowledge of you would give us great strength like it did to Isaiah and great zeal. Like Isaiah did when he saw your face, he was like, woe is me. Then he was like, Lord, send me. So Lord, I pray, give us zeal because we spent time in the face of God, seeing the face of God in your name. Amen. So.